Hello there. Thanks for tuning in. This is a special podcast episode for Women's History Month. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Dr. Farhana Rahman, an award-winning ethnographer who spent 14 months with Rohingya women in the refugee camps outside of Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh. When I went into the camp for the first time, I had arrived right at the date of the influx. I arrived in August 2017 when the mass exodus was taking place. Today, Farhana shares the stories of the women in these camps, stories of incredible strength and resilience, in which the women forged new lives for themselves, despite some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable. We focus so much on the difficulty and the suffering, which is very important, and it's important to get that out in in the public. But we often forget that despite all of this, vulnerable people, people like Rohingya women, are living, they're surviving, they're finding ways to thrive. And to me, that was the most valuable thing I experienced from all of this, is that I learned so much from them. Over the course of the episode, we'll be discussing gender dynamics and changing gender roles within the camps, the different strategies women use for support, solidarity and survival, the work of NGOs, as well as a conversation about research methodology and conducting ethical ethnographic research. Today, Rohingya refugee women, stories of resilience. Just before we start, this episode contains brief references to sexual violence and suicidal thoughts, but they are not discussed in detail, and the overarching themes are of strength, agency, and resilience. Enjoy the episode. It seemed like the world was ending. Everything was gone and destroyed. There was nothing left. I felt like it was a day of judgment. These were the words spoken by 19-year-old Zannat, who vividly recalled the day that tipped the scale as the most brutal of oppressions against the Rohingya in Myanmar. It began in August 2017. An escalation of violence took place in Rakhine State, Myanmar, including rape, gang rape by multiple soldiers, forced public nudity and humiliation, and sex slavery by military captivity directed against the Rohingya. And then a million desperate journeys began. There was a mass exodus of over 700,000 Rohingyas who left their homes behind, setting off on a dangerous and precarious journey, not knowing exactly where their destination would be, but out of necessity nonetheless, following one another in search of refuge. They walked, ran, swam for days, remained hungry, and carried the weight of their children and elderly family members, taking with them some bare necessities and just the clothes on their backs. And ultimately, they would reach the makeshift and overpopulated refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh. So tell us about Cox's Bazaar in these camps. What do they look like? So Cox's Bazaar is located along uh, the border with Myanmar on the southeastern border of Bangladesh. And this area was traditionally a very barren, desert-like, harsh region. And when the Rohingyas had arrived in August 2017, I was there and I witnessed this mass um, influx of people coming into the area and makeshift and haphazard homes were set up, shelters were set up to deal with the large-scale influx of people. And these shelters, what are they made out of? What do they look like? 
Yeah, so they're quite dingy shelters made out of tar- tarpaulin and bamboo. Usually the bamboo is cut from, from the trees in the surrounding areas and tarpaulin are set up as sort of like the roofs and the walls of the homes of the shelters. And so there's thousands and thousands, you can imagine thousands and thousands of shelters are built across this barren desert-like area. And they continue to expand even to this day. They, there's miles and miles where your eyes can see in the horizon. Shelters are just continuing to be set up. And environmentally speaking, do these shelters provide any protection at all, really, from the elements? Environmentally, it's in a very precarious area, especially in, in like during the monsoon season. There's things like landslides and and a lot of deaths, especially of children, that take place when heavy rains to come about. There's sandstorms um, because they're in a very sandy, dusty area, and and it's a very squalid environment. You know, there's not a lot of protection in terms of cleanliness in terms of I mean I think there are trying and there's there's efforts by humanitarian agencies to create some sort of safe space but if you're speaking about the elements it's hard to to get away from from that and how do people start kind of building a life and a livelihood for themselves in those circumstances yeah so initially when when in 2017 obviously the first instinct is just survival getting um, the refugees into shelters making sure they have their basic necessities in terms of food um, health care even hygiene products taken care of but over the years and I have noticed that and there are attempts to build some type of sustainable income a lot of local um, NGOs try to set up perhaps um weaving sort of training programs for women or local build bricklaying opportunities for the men so there are different sort of pockets of employment that have opened up for but for the most part there's nothing long term because the Rohingyas are not able to come out of the camp they're not able to enter Bangladesh society and become part like an act as as, um, citizens or um, residents of the country so they're kind of um, contained with to life in the refugee camps in this protracted situation. So your research focuses particularly on Rohingya women and their lived experiences. What is their role like in these camps? Traditionally, Rohingya women are take on more of a homemaking role. They take on roles um, t- taking care of the children, cooking. But I think any type of crisis or migration creates... Um, changes in gender relations and roles and that's something that I found you know those traditional roles of masculinity and femininity are stripped away women are losing uh, men or rather are losing their breadwinner status women are having to take on employment in the, in a way that they hadn't before so there are a lot of nuances in, in that some women take on these roles very willingly um, whether it's you know sewing activities I have one interlocutor who started a, sew- a small sewing business from her shelter and she was taking orders from her her neighbors and her friends and she would sew clothes dresses um, um, shawls that sort of thing whereas in some other cases women are perhaps their husbands have lost their job and they're having now to take on things like fishing uh, sewing fishing nets um, so these are there, there's different ways that women are now having to negotiate these different gendered activities and negotiate with their husbands. How are they going to take on roles within the family, within the home? And it can lead in many cases to, to difficult situations. Sometimes women are having to 
to deal with violence um, because men are their husbands perhaps are are not able to to deal with losing their breadwinner status. So these sort of uh, of issues come about as well. So how did the women respond to those issues? Did you see like different kinds of strategies being used in the camps? Yeah, so I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. Like one of the very interesting examples, I had an interlocutor, um, her name was Hamida. And so she's the one that had to take on sewing because her husband no longer um, can work. She does need to work by hand from her home. But one of the things she had told me is that her husband gets very abusive and any money that she does gain from the, this this job, she um, she has to hide it because she's worried that her husband will use it to buy alcohol. And just to read a quote that Hamida had told me, she said, My husband cannot tolerate that I am providing for the family and he's not. He gets very angry and sometimes beats me. The worst thing is that whatever little money I do get, I don't want to give it to him because I know sometimes he wastes the money to buy drugs from the market. But I try to hide that money and I tell him that I have not yet been paid. Even if it's very little, I usually hide the money in my pots and pans because I need to think about my children and save it for them. I know he will never go near the pots. So that's very interesting, you know, if you think about her trying to hide the money in the pots because she knows the kitchen is sort of this feminine gendered space that men won't enter. And that's the only way that she can, you know, gain some sort of agency in, in taking control of her own life. So that's a very fascinating way that even despite still facing um, um, violence at the hands of her husband, she's trying to navigate this by by hiding the money. Um, and another example was, which I think was a very positive example, um, perhaps if Hamida's is, is not as positive, another interlocutor at Tafura who's now become um, the breadwinner um, because her husband no longer has a job. One day I was I was spending time with them in, in their shelter and, and her husband was stepping out and then asked Tafura about some money and if he could borrow the money um, as he was leaving and they were having a, just a quick discussion at the door. And then after her husband left, Tafura came to me and said, did you see how he let me know that he was taking some of the money? When he was the breadwinner, most of the time, I did not know how much money we had or even where he kept it. Now I am in charge of safekeeping the money. Did you notice that we discuss these things now? I know it's not a lot, but it makes me happy that I have something to contribute and he listens to me. I can make some decisions now. That, to me, is a very powerful thing. You know, women in many ways are now even... Even though they were previously not breadwinners, they're now able to take on financial decisions, decision-making within the home, you know, divide those tasks with their husband in a way perhaps they weren't able to. So I think these little pockets of everyday life, the nuances that we see of resilience women are able to fight through sort of the the stereotypes and the difficulties, um, I think it's a very powerful thing. In addition to these individual strategies, Farhana also observed examples of community solidarity in the camps, such as female-only religious circles called dalims, where women would come together to pray and support one another. One of the most powerful examples, I think, of, of women's agency, of women despite having suffered extreme and devastating abuses, um, things like rape and sexual violence, are creating spaces of resilience and agency for themselves, by themselves, in the refugee camps. And I found that through something called the Talim. The Talim is essentially a women's only religious space. It's held in someone's shelter. Um, Any woman is is able to hold it in their shelter. And uh, 
other Rohingya women come together. It usually happens every Friday after Friday prayers. Women come together, a, a local Rohingya female leader, uh, a teacher comes and teaches, reads from the Quran, and they, they read the text, they discuss the text. And then something very beautiful happens. They all raise their hands together in supplication. They pray together. There they cry together. There's a very beautiful moment of, of sharing this religious space where where you're able to let all of your your trauma and your you know things that perhaps are weighing heavy on your heart. You're able to cry together, and I remember being part of these talims and and one of the my interlocutors, um, Aisha who shared with me something very beautiful about coming to this space. And it was, she shared that it was a very transformative experience for her as she struggled through traumatic memories of rape and losing all three of her children, two of whom were killed during the violence in Myanmar, and the third she lost along the way during the journey to Bangladesh. And, and one evening when we were speaking, she spoke softly, holding back her tears, and she said to me, I used to stay up all night crying and asking Allah to take me away. I kept thinking of what happened in Myanmar and felt angry, sad, frustrated. I wanted to kill myself. I didn't know who to turn to or where to go. And then I heard about the Talim here in the camp and went to it. It helps me so much. When I cry by myself, a lot of bad thoughts come to my mind. But then in the Talim, everyone is crying together. Like all of our worries are coming out together. It makes me feel a thousand times better, as though a big weight is lifted from my heart. And so I found, you know, this overwhelming feeling of comfort and belonging and solidarity and friendship um, amongst all of these women. They're able to come together and share their sorrows, even if, it's, even if they're not talking about it, being able to cry together and knowing that we've all had this shared experience of pain and suffering. It's a very beautiful thing to see. And it might be this temporary space that Talim is this, but it, it becomes almost like a safe haven for this Rohingya women. And it creates um, this a momentary microcosm of this home um, that once was because a lot of these women said, you know, they used to hold the Talim back in Myanmar. Um, their, their sisters, their mothers, their cousins and aunts, they used to all come together. So even though a lot of those family members are no longer with them today, they still have that similar experience of home and belonging that they've created in the refugee camp. And what I found extremely, like the most powerful uh, thing about this Talim is that it was created by Rohingya women for Rohingya women as a way for them to deal with the mental trauma that they faced, the physical trauma that they faced. And in many ways, it's, it's almost going in contradiction to what Western institutions and humanitarian aid organizations think vulnerable women like Rohingya refugees, Rohingya refugee women want and need. Um, in my own research, I found that large humanitarian organizations have created spaces for drawing and sewing. And not to say that those are not useful and important tools, but in speaking to, in my own research, in speaking to Rohingya women, I found, and I asked them, are you attending these these spaces for drawing and sewing? And they're like, no, because we're not used to that. To us, that is not as valuable as something like the Talim. We prefer a religious space where we're able to heal, something that's more comfortable and in tune with what we want. And I think it's important, you know, in my own research and when I work with, with um, international organizations and NGOs, I try to, you know, advise and guide them that we should always be listening to the people that we are working with. There is value in listening to what they want, what are they looking for, the kind of 
um, solutions that they feel is more in tune with their culture and their religion, their wants and their needs. And I think it's important, even as I, I've been doing my research to find that, working alongside international organizations and realizing we don't have all the answers. As Western institutions, we don't have the answers. So it's important for us to know that, in fact, they themselves, the refugees themselves, vulnerable people, they know what is right for them. And how do those principles of um, centering those women's voices and respecting those ag- their agency, how does that factor into your research and your role as, a, as an ethnographer in the field? For me, I think one of the important aspects of doing any kind of work, long-term ethnographic research, is building trust and friendship and bonds with your interlocutors. And so for me, one of the main things, and I think for when I'm doing work um, with the Rohingya refugees, having spent 14 months conducting feminist ethnographic fieldwork, feminist methodology essentially forces one to build those bonds of friendship with interlocutors. I think... For me, there's value into coming into a space, creating trust before even conducting research. Research cannot be this type of helicopter approach where you come in, ask very difficult, sensitive, personal questions from a person, and then take that information and bring it back into the ivory tower and write a fancy PhD or a book. To me, that seems almost like a selfish way of doing research, I think. My approach has been, even before going into the community and asking those difficult questions, I think spending time, spending time with with the women, I would cook with them, I would sit with them and do their daily tasks together, we would sing together, we would dance together. There were moments where the most important conversations that we had took place where we were getting water from, from the tube well or standing by the side of the road and, and having conversations. And, you know, one of my interlocutors um, that I had spoken to had told me at, at one time, you are not like the others that come here. So many people just come here for a short time and write our difficult experiences down. They take our information and we never see them again. You are the only one here with us for many days and listening to our stories. Nobody is spending time with us like you. And so for me, these words really hit hard and reminded me that even something as simple as doing long-term research and creating bonds of trust and friendship makes such a difference in how we ethically conduct research with vulnerable people. And I think this is something, as I work with international organizations, I, I, I have a critique with them because... Usually they come in, they have their deliverables where they'll ask maybe 50 women, they'll get those information and then they'll leave. And in many ways, those questions re-traumatize these women from the experiences that they've already felt. So when this interlocutor shared this with me, I felt almost a responsibility to make sure that you have to constantly be doing research in a very ethical way, in a way that's mindful of their experiences. And it reminded me again of something else another interlocutor had said to me about how we go on and take the voices and the experiences of of these people and what we do with it and how we share that. One elderly interlocutor in her 60s, Khatun Kalama, told me one evening, you are now bearing witness to all of this suffering. On the day of judgment, Allah will ask us, what have we done to help our brothers and sisters? To me, that was an extremely emotional and powerful reminder that 
no matter how much we take this information, all of these voices and the stories of these women and the suffering that they face, it is our responsibility to share it, to make sure that people are aware of their voices, that people are aware of the things that they have faced. And we cannot just leave it hanging in a fancy PhD or in a book in the walls of the ivory tower. So I think that leads us on nicely to talk about your own aid work. Um, so will you tell us a little bit about the Silk Path Relief Organization that you set up? So my organization, um, it's, it's an organization my husband and I started a number of years ago. Um, primarily it works in, in countries like Afghanistan and with Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and Malaysia. And initially, the, the main goal of this organization is to focus on a- groups and, and areas within crisis situations in Afghanistan and with Rohingya refugees that are traditionally forgotten amongst large-scale um, inter- international humanitarian assistance. So a lot of the time in, in NGO sort of programming, they're usually focused on the needs of, of refugees, for, for example, that are at the center of the crisis, that are at the forefront of perhaps the, the refugee camp. But our organization tries to build relationships with small pockets of vulnerable people and work directly with the needs that they need, whether it's water, um, any kind of building a tube well or specific hygiene products, solar, solar paneling. And one thing that's very um, important and I think different about our organization is because we're a small organization, 100% of the proceeds of any donations that we get go directly to the people. We do not take any administrative costs. 100% of it goes directly to giving programming or the specific needs of the community. All this time that you've spent in the field through your charity and, and NGO work and then also through your field work, that's all culminating in your book now, isn't it? So what can you tell us about that and what it tells us about the Rohingya women? So all of this research has now culminated um, in, in a book that will be released very soon within the next year, forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. Um, and I'm excited because this is, in fact, the first book of its kind detailing um, extensively about the gendered experiences of Rohingya refugees. There have been experiences of uh, of gender and refugee and ref- gender enforced migration in other contexts, but this is the first of its kind in 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 the context of the Rohingya crisis. And so I think it's valuable um, in exploring. And what I do for the most part in the book is look at how Rohingya refugees, particularly Rohingya women, are making a life for themselves within the refugee camps, despite all of the suffering um, and pain that they have faced. You know, a lot of the time in the media, in public media, we focus so much on the difficulty and the suffering, which is very important, and it's important to get that out in, in the public. But we often forget that despite all of this, vulnerable people, people like Rohingya women, are living, they're surviving, they're finding ways to thrive, they're making spaces for belonging and finding a way to create a home within the refugee camp, even though it's not home. Um, There's moments of happiness, moments of joy, moments of sweetness, there's marriage that takes place. My book focuses even on things like love, um, focuses on relationships between um, friends, between husband and wife, Um, moments that Rohingya women are creating, finding resilience, um, spaces um, for agency, spaces where they're able to create a home in a way that perhaps is different from how it was in Myanmar. And so, you know, in the end, we talk so much about death, but there is so much life 
in the refugee camp there's life in these spaces of suffering and difficulty and that's very much what my book focuses on we'll all be keeping an eye out for the book when it comes out um but one last thing that i wanted to ask you farhana what was it like for you personally being in those spaces i mean 14 months sounds like such a long time to be in the field what was it like for you it was a very life-changing experience it was one of those experiences where you go in thinking you know when i came in um to do the field work i had planned a very a, a different type of project but when i went into to the camp for the first time i had arrived right at the the date of the influx i arrived in august 2017 when the mass exodus was taking place and i noticed and i witnessed with my own eyes this the influx of people and it was it was an incredible scene it was almost surreal to think that people could be coming in such large numbers in a way that i had never i had never imagined so when i when i had written my first year report for my phd um for the field work i was thinking i was going to do a project in one way but when i entered the camp i real it completely turned on its head and i realized whatever you think you know whatever you think you write about in in you know the walls of of these fancy institutions nothing can prepare you for what you actually experience once you're in the ground and whatever you think you've learned from from something like a phd you learn infinitely more from people you learn from their experiences you you realize that you know nothing until you've sat down with people and heard what they've gone through and to me that was the most valuable thing i experienced from all of this is that i learned so much from them and i gained so much understanding about people's resilience people people's way to to survive and thrive despite pain and suffering and death thank you vahana so much for sharing all of that you know understanding that you gained from being in those spaces that you've now brought to us it's incredibly inspiring and also the call to be ethical in research um is just hugely important so thank you so so much again for sharing that today today's guest was dr farhana rahman a Leverhulme early career fellow at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge as well as a junior research fellow at Wolfson College Farhana is also co-founder of Silk Path Relief Organization, a non-profit providing humanitarian assistance in countries like Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Malaysia. For her extensive work and research contributions to the field of gender and development, Farhana was the 2021 recipient of the Paula Cantor Award from the International Centre for Research on Women. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about Wolfson College, search for us online, Wolfson College Cambridge, or visit our website at wolfson.cam.ac.uk. We hope to see you again soon.